0: I was sitting on the rostrum, waiting for a fireside to start, and soft music was coming from the piano, filling the chapel with the prelude. People were filing in and talking, and then I observed something unusual. A young couple bring a large covered object into the room and set it up in the front of the chapel when they uncovered it. I saw a lovely harp. Brittany sat down at the harp and began to tune it. She would sound each string and bend down to listen to him. If it wasn't quite right, she would adjust with a specific tool some of the strings she tightened and others of the strings she loosened. I was fascinated watching this. Why? Well, because the room was large and it was filled with the music from the piano and the noise of people talking and chattering just before the meeting began. And yet, Brittany was able to focus and tune everything else out and hear the tiny sound of each of those lone strings and tune it in in such a way to know whether it was on or off. What made it even more fascinating is that Brittany had no mechanical tuner. How in the world did she know when that note was just right? I watched as she tuned that instrument and a short time later played a beautiful arrangement of Away in a Manger. As I listened to her play, I closed my eyes and took it in. It was wonderful. She was so talented. Now, I was so intrigued watching Brittany tune that piano before the meeting started that I walked down and talked to her. And I asked her, How in the world do you do that? Well, she seemed a little surprised that I thought it was such a big deal. Well, it may have been routine and unremarkable to Brittany, but for one as musically untrained, illiterate, and stupid as I am, it was simply awesome. It was miraculous. She is so familiar with that instrument and so attuned to the voice of her harp that she can distinguish it from all other sounds. And she knows in just a moment when the voice is right and when the voice is wrong and how to adjust to get it where it's supposed to be. And you can see where I'm going with this. Britney's harp taught me a lesson. God is speaking to us in a voice still and small, in a world that's large and noisy and chaotic. Are we so familiar with and attuned to his voice that we can distinguish it above the cacophony of discordant sounds that fill our day? Do we care enough to hear Him that we bend our ear to listen and focus our attention to understand? And when we can't hear Him, are we willing to make the necessary adjustments to get attuned? The music of His voice is out there for everyone to hear and is the most beautiful, powerful, and peaceful music in this mortal world, it is worth any cost to hear him. Of that, I declare the truth. Brittany, thank you for letting me tell that story. Second story. As you know, I'm working on a book about the Mormon battalion, and I'm going to take several people, quite a number of people down to San Diego on a Mormon battalion tour here in a couple of weeks. This is one of the stories that came out of my research. I mentioned it last week in the Fireside and Salmon, but I never got to finish the story. So tonight I'm gonna tell it again. Zadok Judd was just a little guy, never very big, and certainly, according to his own account, not very strong. When he was about six years old, he got some kind of an illness that caused his legs to draw up until his knees almost touched his chest. From that day on, whatever that illness was, Zadok couldn't straighten his legs until one day his father picked him up and then sat down on a chair and offered Zadok a new copper or a brand new penny if he would let one foot hang down and let gravity pull on it. Zadok remembered, quote, It was very painful. But for so much money and to please Father, I tried it, and after a long, slow, and painful move, I did it. I was now praised for such a manly effort and offered another copper if I would let the other leg down. It was slow and painful, but I finally succeeded. From that time on, he said, I gained very fast. End of quote. Well, Zadok and his family, in time, were baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and in 1837, the Judd family decided to immigrate to Kirtland, Ohio, and join the saints there. It was a long journey from Canada to Ohio, and Zadok was forced to walk. Now picture this scrawny little kid, crippled legs, and having to walk all that way. He described the ordeal this, it all went well with the company except the cold weather, but with me, it was too much walking. I drove cows. My stiff legs and weak ankles could not stand it. In four or five days, we arrived at the St. Lawrence River, and I was so badly used up. That's a 19th century expression that means just exhausted, worn out, done. I was so badly used up, he said, I was obliged to ride the rest of the way, and it was several days after we arrived at the place of destination before I could stand on my feet. End of quote. Later on, Zadok's family decided it was needful that he learn a trade to support himself. He recorded the following: quote, "Being small and puny, his uncle thought. There's family rather thought the tailor's trade the most suitable for me," he said. Well, putting all this together, it would seem from Zadig's own description that he may have been considered small, weak, puny, crippled, and yet. And yet. It would be this same lad, who at the age of 17, volunteered to march with the Mormon battalion in the war with Mexico in 1846, and in Zadok's own words, quote, I walked it all the way, end a quote. Zadok Knapp Judd marched all the way from California from the Missouri River to California, and back again, a distance of over 3,000 miles. And from there, Zadok Judd stayed a determined course of faith all the rest of his days, all the way into an honored history. He helped settle Parowan, St. George, and finally Canab. He was one of those battalion boys who learn that the only limitations placed on us are the ones we place on ourselves. All things are possible to the faithful. And my dear friends, sometimes we don't know just how tough and strong we are until we have to be. I also mentioned this story. I think, last week. But again, I never told the whole story. Years ago, when I was just a boy, my high school, Letour High School, would conduct, I believe it was twice a year, the Presidential Physical Fitness Trials. Now, what that was, as at every fall, and I think, again, every spring, coaches would gather all of us up, And we would compete in different categories to demonstrate our physical fitness push ups, sit ups, pull ups, climb up a rope, run, all kinds of stuff to show that we were in good physical condition. And there were three categories uh, or three levels of it there was the bronze, the silver, and the gold. If you were a really good athlete in great physical condition, then you would earn the gold medal. Well, Every year, I would compete along with all my classmates. I really didn't have a choice. It was PE credit. And you know what? I would excel in every category, except one, the softball throw. I would earn a gold medal rating in every category of fitness, the push-ups, the running, the rope climb. Everything they asked me to do, I was top of the flight, except throw a softball. I could not throw a softball worth beans. Year after year, I would be knocked out of the gold ranking because I couldn't throw a softball far enough. I tried everything, everything. I remember standing on the bluff near our home out east of Ledore, that overlooked the headwaters of the Lemhi River. And there I would stand on that bluff and I would throw rocks for hours in an attempt to improve my ability. I would throw and throw and throw until not only were all the rocks gone, but my arm ached and the sun went down on me. But to no avail. Every year, every trial, I failed the softball throw and missed the satisfaction of being an honored gold medal athlete. And for a boy who wanted friends and recognition, that was hard. I worked on the ranch, bucked hay, swung a shovel. I knew how to work. I was a tough, lean, well-muscled kid. But I couldn't throw a softball to save my life, no matter how much I practiced. So what? I learned then, and I've known it ever since, that practice doesn't make perfect. Without a coach, a teacher, a mentor, someone to help us, well, we tend to keep repeating the same defeating behaviors. If we don't practice good or well, we don't practice well, we don't become better. If we keep practicing the same bad technique, we still come up with the same bad outcome. To perfect any skill, and you know this, generally requires the help of someone smarter and more skilled than we are. Well, all these decades later, I still can't throw a softball. But you know what? Now I don't care. I've given up perfecting my throwing arm for perfecting my character. I've traded in medals of gold in high school for those streets of gold in eternity where my heavenly parents live. I want me and my family to be with them and like them in every way. It is their honor and glory that matters to me now. Don't get me wrong. I'm still practicing, harder and more consistently, in fact, than I ever did back in high school. But now I have a skilled coach, a teacher, fully invested in me. It is as if I am his only student. In fact, he said, I am engraven on the palms of his hands, so devoted is he to me. He is the author and finisher of my faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is just as devoted to you. Given enough time, my dear friends, and the power of his love and others, perfection is not only possible, it is inevitable if we are willing. In 1852, Lot Russen was given a copy of the Book of Mormon, read it, and knew it was true. He wanted to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At that time, a neighbor came to his house, and Lot said, quote, He had a large boil on his arm, size of a hen's egg. He said to me, Look, Lot, When I come back from meeting, this boil will be gone, and this arm will be as well as the other arm. When he came from the meeting, he had been blessed by the elders. He called in to show us, Lot said, and there was nothing on his arm, not even a scar. Lot continued, We gave our names in for baptism, and the following week we were baptized by John Price who is the man that had the boil, end of quote. Well, Lot was baptized along with his family, but he still had lingering doubts. He yet wondered if the church was really true. One day, while walking to his home, he said, quote, Again, that feeling of perplexity came into my mind. I took my hat off and knelt down, and began to call upon the Lord in solemn prayer, asking God to show me if this was the true church of God. I hadn't prayed for long, when suddenly a light from heaven shone about me, and the Bible was opened before me. Then all came so clear to me, and I understood. This satisfied my mind. The light stayed with me for a mile, and I shall never forget the joy I felt when I got home. It was 12 o'clock. Shortly after that, Lot was promised that he and his wife would gather to Zion in America. After that, strangely enough, Lot's life was one series of accidents, injuries, and miracles, one after another. In fact, at that time, Lot worked deep in the mines of England. And at one point, he was buried in a cave-in, twice. Another time, the elevator he was riding in, in the mine shaft, gave way, and he plummeted 450 feet to the bottom of the pit and survived. He narrowly escaped explosions and disasters. Lot's was a charmed life. Then one day, October 14, 1871, Lot's wife, Eliza, came to the mine where he was working near Derbyshire, England. She had him called up out of the pit where he was working waist-deep in water, helping to lay pipe. He obeyed her summons and went to the top where she stood before him and said, quote, Take off the wet clothes, Lot, and never put them on again. The money has come to take us to Utah. Lot said, Let me go down and finish the job. And she said, No, Lot, you might get hurt. Reluctantly, he complied. And then he said, quote, At that moment, a cave-in occurred and buried all the men Lot had been working with. He was saved to gather his generations to Zion. The following year, Lot and Eliza Russen were made their way to Utah, where they were endowed and sealed in the endowment house in Salt Lake. They lived out their days in Lehi, Utah, true and faithful to the end. And by the way, where did the money come from? $535.36 was donated by Elder Peter Nebucher, a missionary and Minuteman who had taught and helped convert the Russin family. They came with his help. In the 19th century, the Russins and others of the Lord's people were gathered to Zion when they first emigrated to Utah and secondly, when they were endowed and sealed in the Holy Temple. Today, it's no different. We don't move to a different country. We are safely gathered when we come to the stakes of Zion and are given a ward and when we go to the temple and are endowed and sealed. It is not where we are gathered in terms of real estate, but where we are gathered in terms of covenants. We remain safely gathered when we honor those covenants and stay on that path, just as Lot and Eliza Russin did. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.